We're a few weeks past the election, and with the notable exception of Arizona, there were virtually no disputed results. Here in Minnesota, and even in Wisconsin, where some high-profile races were much closer, the losing candidates conceded and moved on. Those are encouraging signs that democracy is alive and well, but are we out of the woods yet? Already, we find ourselves into the next election cycle, and the issue of alleged voter fraud is likely to follow. What's the read on the state of democracy? We'll ask one of the foremost experts in Minnesota, Secretary of State Steve Simon, who was fresh off his own reelection. We're also going to hear about an area farm that takes a unique approach to animal care and give you the latest on the Wilder Forest River Grove School Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership story. But to start with this week on River Radio, democracy makes a stand. Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown Marine on St. Croix, bordering the wild and scenic St. Croix River, this is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher. And I'm Gail Knutson. Thanks, as always, to our technical director, Matt Quast. Also, thanks to Elaine Larson, who handles our webpage, and Laura Lee DiLorenzo, although she is not in the country at the moment, but she does help us with publicity. Also, thanks to Chan Poling in the suburbs for our theme music. The program is produced by Jim and Gail and presented by the Marine Community Library. The library is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. On today's program, our guests include Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon to talk about the state of democracy and Kelly Tope founder of Pharmastay Animal Sanctuary in Lindstrom, about her efforts to rescue and care for abused, neglected, and unwanted farm animal animals. In addition, we'll have an update on the wilder forest situation and other local news. Along with those listening in on Zoom, welcome to those tuning into us via the Marine Fan Supporter and Booster page on Facebook. And of course, thanks to all of you who regularly listen to our podcast. And I want to start out by saying how much we appreciate the feedback we received on our last program, the one titled The 600-Acre Question Surrounding the Whole Situation Related to the Proposed Sale of Wilder Forest. Oh, we heard numerous comments from many people, so we want to thank you for your kind words about that program and our coverage of this issue since it first broke as we started our fourth season of River Radio. Um, the last program happened to be the most listened to program of our entire four-year run, at least in the immediate two weeks following its initial airing. And we really hope that's a sign of things to come. Hey, around the world this week, uh, there's no shortage of news, of course, but there's no event that's drawing attention quite like the World Cup football tournament. Today is the start of what's called the knockout round, and a lot of us are paying attention to the U.S. team, which plays um, on Saturday morning. Gail, I know you're into it. I am into it. It's been great. And I've watched, I mean, literally a few hours of it now, and I still don't understand what an offside is. But here's Jim to tell us. I'm sure you know. <laughs> yeah, we'll maybe we'll do a whole episode on yeah. what offside is in hey, football. Let's have Matt do it. <laughs> that's right. That, I think that's the answer. But anyway, we're really enjoying it. We love, we love it. It's just odd to have the World Cup happening at this time of year instead of in the middle of summer. Uh, one more item I just wanted to mention that stood out to me this week. 
was a piece on 60 Minutes about dogs. And I think this ties in well to, to the topic you're going to be covering today, Gail. There were a number of interesting aspects to the story, including how cancer treatments on dogs might be applied to human treatments. But another aspect of it struck me. Researchers say that the existence of dogs as a tamed animal that derive from wolves demonstrates that long-term persistence of a species is not a matter of survival of the fittest, but of survival of the friendliest. In short, our ability to cooperate for mutual benefit is critical to our long-term survival. So will that message get through to the politicians in Washington, St. Paul, and Madison, who have so much power to influence the direction of our society? We can only hope. We're joined now by Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon. The Minneapolis native was first elected to the state legislature in 2004 and in 2014 was successful in his first run for Minnesota Secretary of State, winning by a narrow margin. Mr. Simon was reelected to the position in 2018 by about 8%, and in 2022, he won again, defeating Republican Kim Crockett by about 10%. Mr. Simon's been an outspoken advocate for making voting more accessible to people. We're happy to have him back on River Radio this morning. Secretary Simon, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's begin by looking back at this election. A lot of storylines were written that democracy survived and that elections, for the most part, worked pretty smoothly. What's your take on how things played out both here in Minnesota and as you look across the nation? Well, I have a similar view. In Minnesota, just from an administrative standpoint, things went really, really well on Election Day and in the lead up to Election Day, I would say. We had very minimal glitches or problems. Uh, there were occasional flare-ups with equipment, which were uh, soon solved. There was one particular precinct that had a long line. That, too, was solved with the quick thinking of a county elections administrators. It's sort of the story in Minnesota of all the things that didn't happen. We did not have uh, threats or intimidation in any kind of coordinated way against voters, which is good. We didn't have threats or intimidation in a coordinated way that we know of uh, against election workers, poll workers, or elections administrators. Turnout was really, really high. Uh, Minnesota is still in the running to be number one again in the nation. The, the, the dust is not settled and all the numbers aren't in from the other states, so we won't know for a little while. But the bottom line is in Minnesota, things went extraordinarily well, just from the standpoint of an orderly, trouble-free process. You know, my read nationally is that it was much the same. Um, some of what many feared would happen did not happen. Um, that's not to say we don't have challenges. We do. I think democracy was very much on the ballot in 2020. And that's not a, a Democratic or Republican thing. That's just about being true to the process, about pushing back against dangerous disinformation. And in the end, um, I think voters spoke loudly and clearly that they rejected those who trafficked in conspiracy theories uh, and who sought through disinformation to undermine our system. And that's not just true in Minnesota. That's true in many places throughout the country. And yet I, I have to wonder, um, much as there was a seemed to be a huge sigh of relief over how things went, does that mean we, our bar has been set pretty low that we're just just surviving was was feeling good enough versus, you know, continuing to try to improve on our election system and making it more accessible to people? Well, our work is far from done, for sure. 
Um, you're right, in one sense, it's a low bar. And we are heading into a presidential election contest in 2024, which there's no question will be more intense than a non-presidential election year. Um, and it will invite more scrutiny. And there's more danger. There's more downside there that some of the bad things um, might happen because of disinformation. Um, but we should be thankful when we can be thankful. And we can based on 2022. We didn't have the sort of um, pre-election or, or certainly not the post-election upheaval that we saw in 2020, uh, 2020 and early 2021. There was no January 6th moment, uh, at least there hasn't been yet, and I don't <laughs> expect there will be um, after the 2022 election. But heading into a presidential contest, um, I think we have to be really vigilant about some of the things we've seen over the last two, two and a half, three years, and making sure that we can guard against those things. And if we go back to the 2020 election and President Trump, who who has, well, continues to express the view that he feels the election was stolen from him and that that there, there was a lot of fraud, there was rigging. And yet I, I think about how difficult that would be, well, certainly on a nationwide basis, but even on a local basis. In most elections, your workers, the people working the polls are local citizens who are often just there for the day of voting. And and it seems like claims of such manipulation of the system are almost an indictment of, of normal everyday people. You took the words right out of my mouth. I've been I've been putting it that way for a long time. The people we need 30,000 people in Minnesota, 30,000 every election day to step up and be election judges or poll workers. 30,000. That's a lot of folks. And these are your friends and your neighbors. These are the people, you know, in your neighborhoods. They're not doing anything to get rich. Yes, there's a small stipend, but but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because um, they care about well-run elections. There are party balance rules among election judges that make sure that no political party is represented more than 50% in any polling place in Minnesota. And these folks year in and year out do such a thorough, painstaking, ethical job at what they do. They're not political, even if they wanted to be political, they would have very limited impact in the polling place. All of them, all 30,000 of them literally raise their hand and literally swear an oath to be fair and impartial and leave their politics aside. And we've had a very, very good track record in Minnesota of doing that. And I agree with you in the sense that when people talk about rigging and fixing and stealing, at least in Minnesota, what they're saying is that their friends and neighbors, those 30,000 people across the state are somehow in on a plot to throw an election to one side or another. And as many of your listeners, I hope, know, either through personal experience or, or they know it otherwise, we have safeguards in place in Minnesota before, during, and after elections, all public, by the way, totally open and available to the public, that really provide some guarantees of trustworthiness. And I would say this, to rig an election in Minnesota would be extraordinarily different, difficult. This is not a matter of a few people uh, scheming and plotting and able to tip the result of an election. This would take thousands of people in on the plot, in on the plan, in order to affect that kind of outcome. That has just not happened, nor I think would it ever happen under our current system, which is open to the public in stage after stage after stage of the election. So um, I agree with your premise, which is that very often some of what we're seeing is an attack on our friends of neighbor and neighbors. And let me just say, you didn't ask this, but I always feel the need to say, it is absolutely not only okay, 
but a good thing for people to question their government at any level. I don't care whether it's the township level or the president of the United States or, or anyone in between. That's what we do as Americans. Ask questions, ask tough questions. Nobody, at least of, of uh, uh, and not the least of which is me, uh, is saying that we shouldn't do that. Um, but when people start doing more than questioning and affirmatively undermining and casting doubt on the ethics and honesty of everyday folks who are friends and neighbors, that's where I think that we've got to draw the line. That's where I draw a line. Uh, Secretary Simon, I think it's interesting, too, when we look back at, at the election results, that there's been a lot of discussion about um, uh, certain candidates out there really dismissing the idea of early voting or raising the specter of this, this is a fraudulent system and you can't trust it, that that may have actually dampened their own turnout. And are we seeing that that maybe that's backfired some and perhaps that would put some of this to rest? I mean, that's always a possibility. And I've seen some numbers or some speculation to that effect. You know, it depends what people mean when they talk about early voting. In Minnesota, for decades and decades, we have had a robust system of absentee voting uh, where you can vote for weeks ahead of the election um, absentee. The only difference uh, recently in the last decade has been tweaking some of those rules and in ways that are very popular and subject to all sorts of extra scrutiny. So for example, before 2013, the rule in Minnesota was you could only vote absentee, meaning voting early, whether that's in person or by mail or however you did it, you could only do that if you would swear under penalty of perjury that you were too sick, you were too disabled, or you were going to be out of town that day. Those are the only three things that would qualify you basically to, to vote on any day other than election day. But in 2013, I was there. I, this was my bill in the legislature when I was in the Minnesota House on a overwhelmingly bipartisan basis. We all decided that that rule didn't make any sense anymore, that it, it, it you shouldn't have to prove any of those things to be able to vote within the specified legal uh, absentee period. And so Minnesotans have really voted with their feet in 2020 in particular, when we really needed it because of COVID and pre-vaccine America, huge, huge numbers of people chose to vote early, many of them by mail. But here's the, the, the great part about that system. We have certain security procedures in place in Minnesota that very few other states do for those mail-in ballots. Um, extra guarantees of security and trustworthiness that other states do. I could get into them if you want, but um, we have things that other states don't that make that a very clean, honest, and secure way of voting. Can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, I'll give you the main example, which is in Minnesota, when you order an absentee ballot to come to you at home, if you want to vote from home, the rule is you have to provide some sort of personal identify, uh, identifying information. It could be a driver's license number. It could be part of a social security number. It could be other things, potentially. And only if that ballot is returned with that same exact personal identifying information that the person used when they ordered the ballot, only then will it be counted. So sometimes I get the question this way, what about the mailbox thief, right? What if uh, uh, someone who thinks they're being real clever says, hey, I'm just gonna camp out in this neighborhood because I know that all the ballots went in the mail a couple days ago. And I'm just going to steal 10 or 100 or 1,000 of these ballots for myself, and I'm going to vote them and send them in. 
well, that person's plot is going to be foiled because unless they're a really good forger and can forge the signature of the intended voter and they know the precise form of personal identifying information that the intended voter used when the intended voter ordered that ballot and they forge the signature of a witness unless all three of those things are true that person who thinks he's being real clever by stealing them out of mailboxes he's going to send them in and they're going right into the fire they're going to be destroyed <laughs> and they'll never be counted so that's something that not many states do we do that's an extra layer of security that most of the rest of the united states doesn't have and so it's extraordinarily difficult for someone to pass off a mail-in uh, ballot as um, as their own when it isn't intended to be theirs. And so that system has put us in a really, really good place, a very secure place when it comes to voting early by mail. I'm speaking with Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon. And Secretary Simon, um, you mentioned before the bipartisan nature of the bill you had promoted back in 2013 that opened up absentee voting. Is there more you would like to see done in the coming legislative session to make voting easier or more efficient? And the fact, I bring this up in particular with the fact that the DFL will have control of both houses of the legislature and of course the governor's office. Yeah, well, I, just putting party identification on the shelf for a minute, there are things I've been talking about for a long time that enjoy bipartisan support that we can and should get passed. And I hope the legislature and, uh, will join me in those efforts. And let me just mention a couple of them to you. One is um, a system of so-called automatic voter registration. I say so-called because I'm not crazy about that term for this reform. It makes it sound like something that's a lot more sweeping than it is when you hear that anything's automatic. It really isn't automatic. It's just sort of, um, at its simplest anyway, a gloss on something that we already do. We have a motor voter law in this state. A lot of your listeners are familiar with this or might recall the last time they went in to get their driver's license renewed. They might recall that there's a piece of paper among the many that they see that asks them to check a box saying, do you want to be registered to vote? Um, and the reason for that is a lot of the information that you provide to get or renew a driver's license is the very same information you would need to register to vote. So there's that box right now. This is current law where you can check a box uh, to be registered to vote. All that automatic voter registration would do functionally is reverse that sort of pre presumption. In other words, it would presume that people do want to be registered to vote unless they say no, not the other way around. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's the basic way to think about it. So that's something that people on all sides and both sides of the political aisle and all along the ideological spectrum should and do like, certainly in other states they do, red states, blue states, and all states in between have enacted something like that. It cleans up the voter rolls. It makes uh, uh, participation easier for people to get in the system. So that's one, automatic voter registration. Another one is pre-registration for high school students ages 16 and 17 year. Uh, a number of states have done this again, red, blue, everything in between. It's not a partisan issue. And that too has the effect of not registering people before they're 18. You can't do that before you're 18, but pre-registration means they basically get in line. You can do all of the administrative stuff before, do the filtering and screening and checking so that when they're 18, if they pass all those filters and screens and checks, then boom, on their 18th birthday, they can get in the system. It's efficient. It gets young people into the system earlier so that they can vote in that first election that they're eligible at age 18, 19, 20, or whatever. So that's another one. And then the other one I would highlight is restoring the right to vote 
for people who have left prison behind. These are people who are no longer in prison. They've done their time. And uh, a number of states, North Dakota already has the system. Iowa's moving towards it. Florida's moving towards it. Many other states, it's very fast growing. Um, and there's been a bipartisan movement in Minnesota to uh, just impose a simple rule, which is if you're in prison, you can't vote. But when you step out of prison, when someone has made the decision, a judge, a jury, whoever, that you're good enough, worthy enough, safe enough to be in the community, to start your life over, to make amends, to pay taxes, that it's just the right thing to do to ensure that those folks have a say in who governs them and how. Um, it's in everyone's interest that they do. We don't want them to reoffend and be back in prison and making sure that they feel as if they have a stake an ownership stake, once again, in society, instead of the current system, in Minnesota at least, which is that they don't get the right to vote back until sometimes years and decades later. And so those are some examples of things that have bipartisan support. It doesn't matter or shouldn't matter who's in control of the legislature. Secretary Simon, in your own election, you were up against somebody I think we could fairly call an election denier in Kim Crockett. And well, I think, yeah, if I'm correct, you won by the widest margin of any statewide candidate in this election. She still had something like 45% of the vote. Does that concern you? Well, I want to be careful here. I'll say this, that somebody once told me good advice was the only thing worse than being a sore loser is being a sore winner. So I don't want to be a sore <laughs> winner and, and rub anything in here um, or relitigate the campaign. I'll just say very generally that we still have an issue or a challenge to contend with going into the next election in Minnesota and elsewhere. And that is this cloud of disinformation about our election system that is really toxic. And again, for your listeners' sake, when I talk about disinformation, I'm not talking about disagreement. I mean, that's democracy, disagreement. I don't care that someone disagrees with me about elections policy. That's fair game. There are smart, reasonable, patriotic, ethical people who disagree with me on elections stuff. And that's okay. That's never disinformation. What I mean, at least by disinformation, is this organized attempt to um, uh, corrode well-earned confidence in our election system by indulging very often in conspiracy theories, um, by saying things are, that are just not true about the system as it is. We should always have the uh, debates about what the system ought to be, and reasonable people can have different conclusions, but we got to be able to come together on the facts of what the system is and what it is not. And when people say things that are untrue about the current system, how it operates, how it works, what reality is like in terms of our election system, that is disinformation. And there are some uh, nationally and otherwise who see it in their political interest as whipping this stuff up and um, getting others to believe this. And that is a real danger. That is the kind of thing which at its most extreme can lead to something like January 6th, where people are told a certain thing about the election, that it was rigged or fixed or stolen. And they act on that. And in some cases at the extremes, they act in a violent way and people get killed. And so that is a problem going forward. Um, and I, I'm not suggesting that every person who, who voted for my opponent in 2022 subscribes to that. I'm not suggesting that. But I am saying that there is staying power um, in some of these false narratives, and they're going to really be put to the test in the 2024 election because it's a presidential election, and there will be a lot more intensity, a lot more scrutiny. 
Well, Secretary Simon, thanks so much for, for raising these issues today and, and explaining more to us. And, and I really appreciate you being on River Radio this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to Steve Simon. He's just been reelected for a third term as Minnesota's Secretary of State. Before we talk with our next guest, we want to take a few minutes to provide you with an update on the situation surrounding the proposed sale of Wilder Forest. For a very detailed overview, be sure to check out our last program titled The 600 Acre Question. To bring you up to speed quickly, however, the story began in September when Wilder Forest announced that it planned to sell its 600-acre property in May Township to the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership, which intends to establish a youth camp on the site. That created an obvious dilemma for River Grove Charter Elementary School, which is in its sixth year of operation on the Wilder property. In the midst of this, May Township happened to be working on its comprehensive plan, including language related to conservancy districts, and Wilder Forest is considered part of the conservancy district. That shifted the issue primarily into public meetings held by May Township as it considered putting some definition around its conservancy district language, including language around youth camps. May Township held its final meeting on the matter this past week. Over the course of those meetings that Gail referred to, many area residents urged members of the May Township Board of Supervisors to exclude youth camps from the Conservancy District language. On Tuesday, the town board voted on a two-to-one vote to approve the Conservancy District language that omitted any reference to youth camps. But that's not the end of the story. First, Wilder Forest already had a conditional use permit established in 1991 that allowed it to operate a camp with limited definition or parameters placed on that. That permit remains in effect even with the sale, giving the Catholic Youth Partnership the opportunity to benefit from it as well. Also, there's a federal law that puts some limits on local governments when dealing with permits related to religious and other types of institutions. Those two factors led Township Attorney Dave Snyder to recommend that the township include language related to youth camps in its Conservancy District Ordinance. Snyder said that would help put some performance standards in place that could be applied to future conditional use permit requests. But the town board did not go along with Snyder's suggestion and instead removed any reference to youth camp from their final ordinance. We'll explain where that leaves Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership in a minute. But let's talk about River Grove School first. As we reported on our last show, the Wilder Foundation was unequivocal in saying that River Grove's lease expired on June 30th, 2023, and the school needed to be out of its current space by that date. At its monthly board meeting this week, held after the May Township vote, River Grove Executive Director Drew Goodson reiterated that the school has asked Wilder for a 14-month extension, which would see it through the 2023-24 school year. Wilder, for its part, has not given any indication that such an extension is forthcoming. At the same time, River Grove is working with Manitou Fund, owners of the neighboring property that formerly housed the Warner Nature Center, for a possible site to at least temporarily house the school. Initially, that would involve some portable units. While the idea of yurts as classrooms was explored, Goodson said that option is now off the table. 
Another distant possibility they are looking at is Camp Lakamaga on Big Marine Lake in Scandia, though talks between the school and the operators of the camp are only in the preliminary stages. Manitou Fun has also raised the possibility of buildings they own at a site in White Bear Lake where the foundation is establishing a McNeely Music Center. Goodson considers that option far down the list. The River Grove School Board will hold a board meeting starting at 5 p.m. on December 12th with the community Q&A portion of that meeting to discuss property options starting at 6 p.m. Goodson says that River Grove hopes to finalize its plans for the 2023-24 school year by the end of December. And that leaves us with the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership and the Wilder Foundation. Where do they stand after the Maytown Board issued its decision that eliminated youth camp language from its Conservancy District Ordinance? Wilder spokesperson Andrew Brown told River Radio that while the foundation is disappointed in the board's decision, they remain in a purchase agreement with the Catholic Youth Partnership and will work through the process as they know more about their course of action. As for the Catholic Youth Partnership, its president, Tim Healy, says they continue to proceed with their plans, but they will be in front of May Township again. The Catholic Youth Partnership has submitted a new conditional use permit application. They're waiting for initial feedback from the township. Healy says they intend to obtain all approvals before closing the sale with the Wilder Foundation. One more point, Healy had mentioned in our last show that the Catholic Youth Partnership was open to offering River Grove a one-year extension on its soon-to-expire lease to give the school some breathing room before it finds a new home. Drew, Good, uh, Drew Goodson told River Radio on Wednesday night that the school is open to the possibility of working with the Catholic Youth Partnership on an extension. However, he did restate, as mentioned on our last show, that the school doesn't feel the Catholic Youth Partnership is in a position to offer a lease extension until they actually own the property. Uh, to follow up on that, Tim Healy of Catholic Youth Partnership told River Radio that he agrees the partnership isn't in a position to formally make that offer just yet. He adds that if the school helped the partnership as it seeks the necessary approvals from May Township, it might help speed things along and lead to a potential solution for the school. So to sum things up, May Township has finalized its Conservancy District Ordinance, excluding youth camp provisions. However, it does not resolve River Grove Schools' issues in terms of its lease expiring on June 30th, 2023. And the Minnesota Catholic Youth Partnership is moving forward with its plan to purchase Wilder Forest and ultimately establish a youth camp on the property based in part on an existing conditional use permit that remains in effect. In, we, in short, we can tell you that this story is far from over and we'll continue to keep tabs on it as the situation progresses. Kelly Tope founded Pharmastay Animal Sanctuary in 2016, a nonprofit in Lindstrom that rescues abused, neglected, and unwanted farm animals and gives them a place to roam and live out their lives. As a vegan, Kelly says she became acutely aware of the fact that farm animals are seen as something and not someone. She wanted to work to change that belief and provide a place where some of the animals from the industry could live out their natural lives. Welcome to River Radio, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. 
Well, I drove up to Farmers Day this past week to meet you and the animals. And although it was a very cold day, I can still see the two pigs smiling and nestled together, napping on a big pile of straw. Can you tell us a little bit about Charlotte and Phoebe? Absolutely. Yeah, those two are, well, Phoebe is our most talkative animal. We say she will have a conversation with anybody that wants to approach her. So she is very loving and, and just adores being the head of the two of them. She loves being in charge, uh, but they are from a actual pig sanctuary or pig farm, sorry, in Iowa. And during COVID, um, we had people reaching out and trying to ask some of the farmers, if they would be willing to relinquish um, some of their animals at that point. And there, there was a farmer in Iowa who was willing to do that. And he said, yes. And so we were very thankful to be able to rescue two of them, Phoebe and Charlotte. They were seven weeks old when they came to us. So they have pretty much grown up with us. They will be three in May and they are just adorable and very clearly loving life, loving being able to go outside and roam and dig. They don't really have the opportunity to do that uh, generally on most pig farms, they um, are either kept in buildings or, you know, concrete floors. So they don't get a chance to really root, which is one of their natural instinct instincts to do. So they love it. And here they have a uh, full two acres of their own to just run and dig in and do everything that they want to do out there. In your other life, you work in the business arena, helping grow well-known franchise brands. What was it that got you started with Farm Animal Rescue? Yeah, so two things, actually, two main things. One, um, well, I guess I'd say three. I always had a love for animals. That was always something that was in, you know, the back of my mind. I had a lot of animals growing up, certainly have um, animals at my home, but I got into business and I loved business and I really loved being in that side of my career. And so I just kept on that path. Um, until in 2016, beginning of it, our dog fell very severely ill and I cared for him and nurtured him back to health and dealt with all of the things that really that piece took to really take care of him. And through that, I, I had triggered in me that I wanted to make sure I was doing something in my life to help animals. And I started researching and seeing what were my options. I didn't want to go back to school at that time. I was very solidly planted in my career after 27 years and um, thought, well, what can I do then? And so I started researching and found Farm Sanctuary in New York. And I, I didn't even know that Farm Sanctuaries existed, to be fully honest with you, and decided that I should look further into it. And I went out and I spent time out there, really learned the system, um, got to to see what it was like to not only go through, you know, simple things like mucking out barns, but care for the animals and how to go through their, the healthcare they're going to need and how to, you know, really go out and do fundraising and be able to bring in the funds that you need to be able to care for these animals for life. So that was a great experience that catapulted me into deciding I wanted to do this. And then the secondary thing was that um, at the same time, my daughter was diagnosed with pretty severe depression, anxiety um, at 13. And so it just was something for her that having this connection with the animals was paramount to her being able to move through some of the days that she had and really being able to have something where she felt she was going out, she was interacting, she was outside off her phone, which we all know is very important these days. Um, mm -hmm. And so it just, it gave her an outlet. It just gave her a place to really step outside of what she was feeling and the feeling that she wanted to kind of stay in her room and not leave for the day. And this gave her something to go for and something to really, you know, help move her through that, that moment. So uh, it was something that for all of us, we, we say, you know, the animals heal us and we heal the animals. So it's a, it's a great synergy between the two. So. 
Yes, it sure is. I, I can imagine that. So um, let's talk a little bit about that fundraising that you mentioned, because yeah. how how are you funded? Is there federal state funds for you or are you relying pretty much on people just uh, donating and doing volunteer work? Yeah, so we, uh, although we are technically, you know, considered egg because we have farm animals, we do not get any of that funding um, because we are a 501c3 nonprofit. And so for us, we do have to do fundraising. We do tours in the summer, usually May through October. We do events May through October. We do a lot of on-site fundraising. And then in addition to that, we will do, for instance, right now we have an online silent auction going on on our website that people can log into and, you know, be able to put a, put a bid in and possibly get something. Um, and then that all goes towards the animals. So everything that we do from, you know, the simple things of the straw that they sleep on and that helps them stay warm in the winter, you know, their hay, their grain, uh, all the way through to their vet care, which is really the most unknown factor. You know, you don't know what's going to come up or how much the cost is going to be on that. And so that is something that we always need to keep a very large emergency fund in place to be able to handle that. You know, these animals stay here for life. And uh, many people may not know for cows that can be upwards of 20 to 25 years. So we need to make sure that we know we have the funds available every year to manage whatever may come up and whatever health crisis we may need to deal with for them. So certainly a lot of different outlets, we, we utilize everything we can. Uh, we do have uh, some large donors as well who annually um, are willing to continue to provide that for us. But a lot of what we do is through our tours and our events and just online donations that we get from people. And it's not just straw and food for for the animals. There's a lot of vet care involved with these um, these uh, farm animals as well, there, right? Yeah, there's a lot. You know, for another example of something that people might not know is that for you know pigs generally are raised to be about 250 pounds within the first six months of life, and then they're sent to slaughter. So. For us on our sanctuary, those animals may live, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, um, and things will start to arise. You know, we work to really keep them active and moving so we can keep them lean so they don't get so extremely large because they are bred to just get bigger and bigger. Um, and so we really maintain a healthy, a healthy diet so they don't just get you know, larger and larger, and they certainly do get bigger than the 250 pounds, but we want to make sure that we're keeping them at a weight that they don't have a lot of hoof and, and leg problems, which tend to come up with pigs that are kept longer than that, that typical time that they would go off to slaughter. And so for us, it's very important that we maintain that we watch that because, you know, something simple as having that extra weight on there can cause enormous joint problems and, you know, force that they are now on pain medicines for life. So a lot of those factors that we have to continually watch and look at, but then also be ready to care for it should they come up, because we're going to offer them the highest level of care that we can. Since we are keeping them here at the sanctuary, we want to make sure that they are healthy and safe. I'm talking with Kelly Tope, founder of Pharmacy Day, a nonprofit farm animal sanctuary in Lindstrom that rescues abused, neglected, and unwanted farm animals. Now, Kelly, let's talk about the backstory of a few of your animals. I met Timothy, the very sweet blind bovine yes. who had been severely neglected as a baby. Uh, Timothy was in an outdoor area with his friend Mags, a dairy cow born with a spinal deformity. So how were they both found and then brought yep. to Pharmacy Day? Yes. So they were actually both came directly from farmers. Um, so one, Timothy was 
uh, born onto a farm that the individual has taken over the farm from his parents and, you know, unfortunately didn't have the time to do all the checks that he was needing to do at that time. And, and Timothy did get pink eye. Um, and it is something that is treatable. And, but unfortunately that was not treated. And so when he got to us, his eyes had both already ruptured. And so we actually had him at the university of Minnesota and his eyes were removed immediately. So he has been blind basically from the first 24 hours that we had him. Um, he did, he had surgery done. So that was very quick. And he had to learn very quickly how to use his ears, you know, his hearing and his smell to be able to get around and know where he was and understand his environment. And we worked a lot with him on different signals. You know, we would use our voices and different commands to allow him to know, you know, where his brain was, where he was going, where, where the walls were in his stall, you know, different things of that to allow him to start to get that radar in and really learn it on his own. Um, and then we knew that he needed a friend because he was going to need someone to help him navigate. So we got a call uh, for another cow from a dairy farm uh, in Southern Minnesota or Southern Wisconsin, pardon me. And she unfortunately was born with a spinal deformity that causes her to have digestive issues. So uh, we have to watch how quickly she eats her hay. So we have her feed off of hay nuts, which you often see a lot of time for equine. And that allows her to get all the hay that she needs, but it does it in smaller, slower feed doses so mm -hmm. that she's not just gobbling it up really quick. Um, and that allows her stomach to have some time to digest it as it's going through and be able to take it in at slower, at a slower rate. And so the two of them formed a bond immediately. And, you know, we, we say that Meg's is Timothy's seen eye cow and she just loves to take him around the pasture and, you know, he'll, he'll move for her and then he finds her and goes to her and they have just, they have a bond unlike any other. And, you know, when we had to take Meg's in um, because she did have a little issue with her bloat, we had to take her to the U and um, unfortunately we needed to keep Timothy there at our sanctuary. And so we actually kept him in his stall for the couple days that she was gone um, because he will look for, he'll try to find her. He will try to hear her. He'll try to, you know, sense out her smell, where is she at? Um, and he, and he does get very anxious when that happens. And so we try to keep them together as much as possible and really try to manage her bloat at the farm so that we don't have to have her gone from him because it, it is stressful for him to have her not next to him. And then there's Blue, the one-eyed, one-legged sheep. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Blue is our very first animal. So she's obviously near and dear to many people's hearts. Um, and we were told when we first got her, she was two months old. And um, unfortunately, we were told that it, it was just a dislocated shoulder. Um, the farmer thought she had hit it on the way into a gate into the barn one day. And we got her to the University of Minnesota. And unfortunately, when they did x-ray, they did find out that the leg was actually deformed. And so it needed to be amputated immediately. And uh, so that, you know, we went through that surgery, a lot of care afterwards for her just to get her to a place. She moved very quickly into being what's called the tripod. So she does really well on the three legs. But though, when you remove that front leg, most animals that are on four legs, they carry 60% of their weight in the front two legs because of the head. So when you remove that front leg, now automatically that 60% of that weight shifts over to just that one front leg. And so because of that, that leg will tend to break down faster. The joints will have troubles quicker. You know, you're carrying a lot of weight on that one leg. And so we were told we'd maybe have about two to three years before that other leg would break down. And then we'd most likely need to, you know, potentially euthanize her at that point. 
um, she will actually be six coming up in May. So we are excited that we have done all the things that our vet told us to do, which was keep her in a, you know, smaller pen, smaller pasture area that helps her not have to move around a lot on the leg as much. Uh, Watch how much we're feeding to make sure that she doesn't get really heavy and have a lot of weight on her. So all of those things we're, we're able to do with our animals. We're able to have very one-on-one care with them constantly. You know, we're, we're with them, seeing them, connecting with them every morning, every night, you know, throughout the day, watching them. So we're really able to watch how they're doing and shift and adjust what we need to. Um, you have slaughterhouse escapees at Farmers Day. You know, one hard to catch escapee was Blossom the goat. So who calls about escaped uh, farm animals, certainly not the slaughterhouse. Right, right. So we get we get contacted every week um, with upwards of, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 calls or emails a week for animals that need rescue, farm animals that need rescue. And one of the calls we got um, one time was to take in, uh, Iggy was the very first, um, an escapee from the slaughter market in Invergrove. And he was kind of famous, to be honest with you, for a while because uh, he was peering into people's backsliding doors when they were having dinner and they would turn around there was this goat standing there on their porch um, and so he was finally captured by the Invergrove Police Department and they contacted us and asked if we would take him and he was the start of a number of Invergrove um, Heights goats to come and so we then got Buffy after that and then Blossom as you mentioned so we have been contacted now by the, by the South St. Paul Police Department to come in when these goats are you know seen in the area please come and help us rescue and get them out of here. Um, they are you know, hazardous if they were to get on the roads, unfortunately, you know, that could cause an accident. Um, not only an issue for them, but also obviously an issue for motorists. So it is something where, you know, they now would like for us to come in and kind of help them to be able to rescue these animals. So we currently have three animals that are rescued from the uh, escapees of the slaughter markets down there. And um, they are all uh, very well adjusted. Blossom, as you mentioned, was the most terrified when she came here. She is adjusting little by little. Um, The one thing that's unique about her is um, we found out that she can jump eight foot straight in the air. And so all wow. of our need to be needed to be adjusted because she could clear fencing. Um, and so we needed to build her basically in essence, almost the height of deer fencing so that uh, she would not escape her outdoor area. So, uh, but she loves being outside very clear. She spent a lot of time out there in the woods in Invergrove Heights and uh, roaming around. She definitely loves to be out there no matter the temperatures. So I'm actually staring at her right now as she's standing outside her door. So she, she is one of those that just loves being out there. And we love being able to offer her that opportunity in a very safe environment that's you know going to keep her protected. One more question. How can people help out if they want to pitch in financially, come out and muck out stalls or spend time with the animals? Yes, thank you. We have a number of opportunities. Obviously, you can go online. Um, we have, we're have we on Facebook, Instagram. We, our webpage you can go to. So you can donate through those avenues. Uh, Facebook, uh, great. You can log in on there. There's no fees included in that. So that's wonderful. A lot of opportunity there. You can sponsor an animal. You know, you can pick an animal that you want to sponsor monthly. You get a chance to come out and visit them and have a private one-on-one visit with them. You'll get a picture of them. You'll get a, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, depending on the sponsorship level. So a lot of fun opportunities there. In addition to that, you can come out and actually volunteer. So we have a couple different options there. You can come out and do barn cleaning on Saturdays. You just need to message us and let us know that you want to come. We'll get in contact. We'll give you all the information. We're usually that's from about 930 to noon and you can muck out some barns and meet the animals. And then we also have 
constant need for animal caregivers. And those are individuals that help us open or close the farm each day. Usually we have you commit to one day a week. That's your day that you come, whether that be for an opening shift or a closing shift. And then you get trained in and then you'll know how to care for the animals, feed them, do meds for them, you know, really work with the rest of the team to help care for them. So obviously you get more individualized time with them and really get to see their personalities and build your relationship with them. Super. We also have contact info on our show page for Pharmacy Day, too. So, um, gee, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. Do say hello to Timothy and the gang. I will. All right. I will. Thank you so much. I was talking with Kelly Tope, founder of Pharmacy Day, a nonprofit in Lindstrom that rescues and cares for abused, neglected, and unwanted farm animals. Before Gail brings you the news, let me remind you that River Radio is brought to you by the Marine Community Community Library. And we have a great event coming up this week, Gail. That's right. We got Marine Documentary Night. It's back this Tuesday, not Thursday. Remember, we used to do the first Thursday of the month. We're doing this one on Tuesday because of conflict. So Tuesday. December 6, 7 p.m. And we're showing the documentary Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. So that's this Tuesday, not the normal Thursday, December 6th at 7 p.m. at the Marine Village Hall. And a wonderful documentary. And, and I just want to say you don't have to be a Leonard Cohen fan to really appreciate this documentary. I'd also like to mention that as we're in the last month of the year, we are making our year-end request for your financial support for the library. Along with River Radio and Marine Documentary Night, the library brings you great programs for adults and children, family fun nights, our wonderful collection of books, periodicals, DVDs, and music, and of course, great art exhibits. So please help us in any way you can. We have a link to our online donation page on our show page, as well as the address if you'd prefer to mail a check. And thanks so much for making it all possible. And now for our 92nd River Radio News. On December 1st, the Marine City Council said a levy increased of just under 4% for 2023. This will be up for approval at the council's next meeting on Thursday, December 8th. Not included in the budget is funding for 4th of July fireworks. After significant discussion, the council agreed to remove from the budget the nearly $20,000 required to provide for fireworks in Marine next summer. So once again, no fireworks this coming July. The Marine Village School will be performing the play Annie Kids at the Marine Village Hall on Friday and Saturday, December 9th and 10th at 7 p.m. For ticket info, contact the school at marinevillageschool.org. Security State Bank in Marine will be hosting their annual holiday open house starting at 9 a.m. on Friday, December 9th. Coffee, hot cider, and fabulous homemade cookies baked by Kim Somala will be served all day. If you'd like to have breakfast with Santa, he'll be at the Scandia Community Center on Saturday, December 10th from 8 to 11 a.m. For more information, you can go to the scandiamarinelions.org website. And Gamble Garden will be hosting two Lucia Doggin worship services in Swedish 
on Sunday, December 11th, the first at 6 a.m. and the second at 8.30 a.m. Everyone who wants to attend must make a reservation since there is limited space and seating. The reservation phone number is listed on our show page, as are all contacts for news stories on River Radio. Well, we are back in two weeks. We will, of course, stay on top of the Wilder Forest story and have updates on that. And, of course, much more. We'll have uh, great guests as well. So please be sure to join us for that Saturday, December 17th at 9 a.m. For those of you who join us live or the podcast will be on shortly after that. And thanks again to our guests, Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon and Kelly Tope of Pharmacy Day Animal Sanctuary. We take you out with the suburbs. And once again, we'll be back in two weeks. So until then, remember, you heard it right here on River Radio.